You are freer than you think. It's like the ultimate form of freedom. You expound upon that freedom to develop on this planet. True freedom comes from within. It's the ability. Thinking to myself, I can help you or I can destroy you. Man is a two-time felon. I work really hard and I've been, a, I've been a life learner. When things are feeling tough, let yourself be surprised. The world favors risk-taking. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Freedom Pact. Welcome back to the Freedom Pact podcast. And today on the show, I am joined by Andy King. You may know Andy after he rose to fame following the Firefest documentary on Netflix in which he is one of the stars. He's also had a prestigious career as an event planner and dubbed the concierge of New York City, having been responsible for throwing some of the most wild and biggest multi-million dollar parties you could imagine. This podcast is full of incredible stories from Andy's time throwing these crazy events to giving us the details, the inside knowledge of what really happened at Fire Festival. This podcast is full of crazy stories, so I know you're going to enjoy it, and there's also so much value to be found within and the lessons learned. So please, welcome to the show, Andy King. Okay, well, Andy, welcome to the Freedom Pack podcast. It's a pleasure to host you, sir. Hey, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be with you today and sharing lots of stories. Amazing. That's what we love. So I'm assuming that anyone who's, who's tuning into this podcast, um, they may, fee, may be familiar with yourself through recent years, through uh, the Fire Festival documentary on Netflix. But I actually wanted to throw it back even further um, just to get into your story a little bit more. Obviously, you are... You know, you're fabled for event planning and all these great stories with the Pepsi company and everything. But I want to throw it back to how it first started. I heard somewhere that your first event was when you were 16. How did how did you get into this events business right the way back then? Oh, boy. Um, let's say I'm one of nine children. My parents loved to have parties and but when you're a mom and you have nine kids, you don't have a lot of time to make all the canapes beautifully and all the food and make cool presentations. And um, I'll never forget, I was probably 12 or 13 years old and my mother had a big group over for a party and she had just served, you know, just some cheese and crackers and some simple things. and. Um, they just weren't leaving. And the guests kept drinking and drinking and drinking. And I literally opened the refrigerator and I found like um, two chicken breasts. And then you may not know, but like Pillsbury Doughboy has this little can you hit on the side of the counter and it pops open and then you roll them into little croissants, you know, and you bake them in the oven. And I'm like, shit, what am I going to do? These people need to eat something. And I literally just made the whole thing up. And I, I took the chicken breasts and I, cut them into strips and I could seen, you know, my mother or woman that worked for her make something like this. And I sauteed up the chicken so it was nice and cooked. And then I opened up the can of the Pillsbury and I put the little croissants out on a, you know, that were not cooked yet on a cookie sheet. And, and I added a little bit of mustard and then I put the chicken and I said, wow, how can I make this kind of cool? And I wrapped each piece of chicken with a piece of cheese and then ham. 
and then put it inside of the croissant, wrapped it up and baked them in the oven. And then boom, you know, in 20 minutes, 30 minutes, they were ready. I cut them into cool small pieces and I convinced my sister to go out in the living room to serve them. And of course, my mother was more surprised than anybody else because my mother was like, where is this food coming from? And there I was, 12 years old on a stool. Fast forward to 16, I catered my first wedding. It was 150 guests and I didn't even have my driver's license. So my grandmother had to drive me over there in her big Cadillac, but I made big hams and turkeys and beef tenderloins. And I made all these different dishes and um, it was quite a success. And that was kind of my start at 16 years old, catering parties. So was events and parties, was that something you always wanted to go into or did you just happen to find yourself there? Um, I think I happened to find myself there, but I always enjoyed cooking and um, I always loved being in the kitchen uh, and everyone loves a good party and I just love all the details. So um, I began, you know, my catering business when I was at university, I would cater parties in the summers to make money. And then, um, you know, when I got out of university, I went to work for a firm that placed people in sales and marketing jobs and sales and marketing uh, arenas within the financial services community, mostly within banks and insurance companies. And the only way that I made myself successful, most of the time you were required to make 200 calls a day and you're calling candidates to see if they need a job and you're calling corporations to see if they need to hire anybody. And I'm like, the hell was this shit? I don't like calling people, forget it. And I just make two calls and I'd say, hi, and we'd have a good conversation. I'd say, wow, what are you and your girlfriend doing on Friday night? I'm having a party and love to invite you over. And I began entertaining constantly. So two or three nights a week I'd have, and my boss would have a fit. He'd say, Andy, like, you're not on the phone. What's going on? I'm like, well, I'm the top producer of the company. You know why? Because I'm constantly having parties. And that's how you're able to, most of the time, I feel like develop really good relationships and think about life in general at this point. Like really it's all about relationship development, you know, and that's how you get places and that's how you get things done. I feel like. So on that topic of relationships, then what would be some of your best networking tips or networking lessons you've learned over your career? Wow. Well, for young kids still in university, I always suggest finding an internship when you're in university. And even if you're not being paid, even if you go to work for a local podcast group or a television company, a media group, an ad agency, uh, anything that you're interested in, go and meet with them and say, listen, I'm willing to work for free three afternoons a week and I will do make copies. I'll get coffee. I'll run errands. I'll deliver things. I don't care. You know, I just want to gain experience and I love your industry. And the next thing you know, if you're doing a good job and they like you, they say, Hey, you know, we'd like to start paying you a little bit of money. And you're like, wow. Okay. And then you graduate from university. And one of the internships might say, We'd love to hire you. You were phenomenal as an intern and we'd love to bring you on as a full-time employee. So, you know, on that side, as far as networking, I feel like the internships are so important. But then when you're an adult and now you're running a business or working for a company, it's really, really important to keep yourself out there. And I know obviously, you know, the last couple of years have been rather challenging with lockdowns, et cetera, et cetera. And that's probably been one of the more frustrating aspects that you can't get out there. 
you're not working with people. You can't say, hey, Brian, what are you doing? Do you want to have a beer after work? Hey, Sue, what are you doing Friday night? There's a concert. Like, you're shit out of luck. You can't network. But that's where the wonderful world of Zoom came in. And I think they've done a pretty good job. But it's constantly, you know, I feel like one of the best things that I've been able to recommend for most people after getting a job is to find a charity or a nonprofit that you like. And it could be Boys and Girls Club. It could be you know, the Cancer Society. It could be an outdoor nature reserve. I don't care what, but find a place where you can volunteer one day a week or one evening a week or two Saturdays a month. Because with most of those nonprofits, they're influential people that are board members. And those are people that run big companies. And when they see you busting your ass for free to help their charity, they might say, hey, Andy, so what do you do? I said, well, you know, I blah, blah, blah. I host events. Wow. Well, you should call someone in our office because we host a lot of events and we'd love to do something with you. And I feel like, don't you agree? I mean, that's like the best way to be able to network is like show people your character, show people that you're, you're diligent and you're hardworking. And what a great way to do that often that is finding a charity that needs help. So as we mentioned at the top, obviously you went viral after the Fire Festival documentary, but you went viral in a sense years and years before you know, social media was a thing and it was print media when you were, were your involvement with Pepsi. Can you explain how that position came about and what that time of your life was like? Well, it was a crazy time. Um, I had finally made a decision that I didn't want to be working and placing people in jobs, which I'd done for about 10 or 12 years. And my love, once again, was going back to cooking and food. And for a period of time, I was working in Boston and I was living about 40 minutes away. And there was uh, a commuter boat that could take me to downtown Boston every morning and pick me up and bring me back to the little town where I was living. And so the boat ride was about 45 minutes. And I'd sit there on the boat in the morning. I'd say, gosh, you know, I have this free time. What could I be doing? And I said, you know what? I'm going to write a recipe, one a day or two a day, one on each ride. And I would go to restaurants and I'd go out to lunch or dinner and I'd find something and I liked. And I'd say, you know, I bet I can make that at home and I bet I can make it better or just as good. And I think I can figure out the recipe. So I wrote all these recipes and boom, I, I reached out, I put together a galley and I landed a publisher called Abbeville Press in New York City. But I was in Boston at the time and I decided to move down to New York to be close to the publisher. And I had to do all these photo shoots and um, recipe testing. And, and uh, a very close friend called me and said, Andy, so what are you up to? I said, well, I'm working on my cookbook. And he said, well, I have a client. Um, I run a business where we create, created a database of anything you wanted to know about New York, where to buy it, where to find it, where to see it, where to eat it, where to do it. And we've also extended it to New Jersey and Connecticut and some of the neighboring states. And um, we've recently learned that Pepsi had had a lot of bad press in Fortune magazine and Forbes magazine as this horrible place to work. And that they're now trying to figure out a way to attract good employees and retain them and keep them. And um, we're pitching to them that they should have an information booth 
Whereas someone like you, anybody could come to you, whether you work in, as a runner or work in the mailroom or whether you, you know, are a high level executive. If you have something you need, a theater ticket, a restaurant reservation, you need to get your car oil changed. You need to find a plumber. You need a babysitter. You know, you could come to my department and we could help you. And so typical Andy, you know, I said, you know, I'd love to do this job, you know, and run this information, but, but I can only commit to one year because I don't know what's going to be happening after. Like, my goal is to have a cooking show and on and on and on. And so um, I went through nine weeks of interviews and all of the interviewers were saying, geez, we really like you, Andy, but we're not sure that you're going to be a good match from a personality perspective with the low level employees. You drive a Mercedes, you live in this big house, you blah, blah, blah. And I said, okay, you know, trust me. And of course, um, I got the job and I became best friends with all the runners and and all the delivery people. I was best friends with everybody in the mailroom, but then I was also best friends with the CEO of Pepsi. And so I was able to show them that I could, I could really relate to all levels. And the Wall Street Journal found out that something kind of cool was going on at Pepsi. And they sent a reporter out to spend four or five days with me. And uh, about three weeks later, a friend of mine called me and said, holy shit, you're not going to believe. And I said, what? And I said, you're on the front page of the Wall Street Journal in the center column with your face. And it says, at Pepsi, undivided, he stands, you know. And um, it was a whole big piece. And it was, in, I was entitled America's First Corporate Concierge. And then I was on the front page of the National Enquirer. Um, so your daughter needs a baby elephant for her birthday party. No problem. It was a big picture of me. And then I was on the front page of the uh, New York Post. At Pepsi, he's the right one. Uh-huh. It was a big picture of me as America's first corporate concierge. And so it really, that one situation launched me into the public eye. But as you touched on, there was no social media back then. And, you know, so it wasn't like I did go viral I was on the Today Show. I was, you know, I did television things, Dateline. I was on all the newspapers, but then it kind of quieted down pretty quickly. So you being the person that, the, the, you know, these people came to, to to sort of figure out all these problems, to get all these things, what extent did that reach to? Like, what are some of the, are there any examples that you can think of that may shock some people to hear that, you managed to pull off? Oh boy. Well, let's just say on the lighter side, um, back then, um, let's say Phantom of the Opera was one of the most difficult Broadway shows to get a ticket for. And everybody would go online. You, you couldn't get one next month. Maybe you could get it the following month or maybe you're four months out and Everybody's like, shit, we can't get into a Broadway show. And I said, well, you know, hold on a minute. So I call the director of sales of all the big Broadway theaters. And I say, hi, my name is Andy King. And I, I'm, um, you know, I'm the concierge at PepsiCo. You may have read about me on the front page of the Wall Street Journal. And, you know, we own Taco Bell, Frito-Lay, Pizza Hut, California Pizza Kitchen, Pepsi, you know, Naked juices, you go down the list. It's a long list. And I said, you know, I represent about a half a million employees. And, 
you know, before I could even hang up the phone, they're like, we'll send a limousine to come pick you up. Uh, can you join us for lunch tomorrow? And I'm like, whoa, what's going on? But think about it. Even Broadway shows have, have sometimes have nights where they can't fill seats. And whether it's, I don't know, uh, it could be a holiday night, it could be anything, but I had so many corporate employees that I was helping that many of them said, shit, I don't give a crap if it's Christmas night or whenever, I wanna see that Broadway show and I'm going. And so I had this incredible buying power. I could call any restaurant. They'd say, oh, I'm sorry, Mr. King, the Cirque, you know, no, it's gonna be three months. We can't get your four people. I'm like, okay, well, let me explain something. I represent all the employees of PepsiCo. Boom, once again, can you come for dinner tomorrow night? And because they'd say, listen, we can't get anybody to come to our five o'clock seatings. Who the shit wants to go out to eat at five o'clock? Well, if you work for a big corporation like Pepsi, you don't give a crap. You want to go to that really good restaurant, you'll go at five o'clock. You're not some snobby city person. It's like, I only go out to dinner after 7.30, you know? And so my buying power grew like there was no tomorrow. And um, I was able to create wonderful experiences for people that they could never do on their own because I was able to get them into places where they couldn't go. So the Broadway show, restaurants, those kinds of things became easy. Then I had a very high level marketing executive come to me and she said, Andy, can I chat with you for a minute? And we'd become friends. And all of a sudden she just started to cry. And I said, oh, sure, no. Can I get you a Broadway ticket? I mean, <laughs> How would you like to go out for dinner? She's like, no, no. I have spent the last holiday not knowing who my blood parents are. I was adopted as a baby and I don't know who my real parents are. And I, and my adopted father recently died. My mother's ill, I'm lost. I don't know, I am a mess. And I'm like, oh my gosh, okay, Julie, I can't make any promises, but you sure you don't wanna to go to a Broadway show? I mean, I. <laughs> he said, can you help me find my real parents? I'm like, shit. Well, I put on my 15 hats and I searched and searched and I found one of the top agencies in the United States that finds the blood parents for adopted children. And I set up a meeting and I went with her. And then we had another meeting and boom, three months later at Easter, she was spending Easter with her real mother and father who she had wow. never met. And I was able to make that happen. Isn't that crazy? Can that's you imagine? Yeah. So that's, you know, and I can go on and on and on. There were many, many different experiences that I was involved with that people are often too scared to ask for help or they don't know how to even begin the journey. Mm -hmm. And I was sort of the catalyst to help them kind of figure things out that, you know, you normally couldn't do. How did you find yourself in a position where you were asked to throw the ING party? So shortly after the, the front page article in the Wall Street Journal, I got a phone call from the chairman of ING and he'd recently moved from Amsterdam to New York and he said, Andy, you know, with his very thick Dutch accent, he said, will you come to our office? We'd like to talk to you about your concierge service because we're new here in New York City and we wanna make a big presence and we wanna, we wanna be the bank that everybody wants to work for. Will you come talk to us? I said, sure. So 
I went in, we had a wonderful lunch and I really, you know, got along very well with all of the high level executives there, everybody. And so they said, Hey, you know, how do you feel about it? I said, listen, I'll set up a concierge office for you and I'll hire a couple people and we'll get all that going. I said, Oh my God, you're amazing. And I said, yes, you know, um, but keep in mind, like the most expensive party I'd done for Pepsi was about $150,000 probably. And so um, the chairman says, well, Andy, we're going public on the New York Stock Exchange and we'd like to have a series of parties, but we'd like to start with one big one. And um, we'd like to invite 1,200 of the top investment bankers in New York City. I said, wow, it's gonna be a big party. And I said, well, what's your budget? And he said, well, you know, we'd prefer not to spend over $2 million. And of course I was like, <laughs> I don't even know what to say. I was like, $2 million. I said, oh, um, so are you flexible? <laughs> and he said, well, yes, if you come up with some amazing concepts, we'll spend $4 million. We don't care. I'm like, oh my gosh. Meanwhile, let me tell you, it was the party of the century. And I bought my first beautiful big sailboat with a commission from that one party and um, hired a full-time captain. Um, thank you, ING. And then I began doing all of ING's big entertaining, but the phone would ring and it would be somebody from Goldman Sachs. They'd say, Andy, how much did you spend on that ING party? I'm like, I, I can't say. A million? Mm, two? Oh, three? Oh, God. They're like, okay. If we give you $4 million, can you blow that thing out of the water? So think about it. Like in the years of, you may be too young. Do you remember the, the movie, The Wolf of Wall Street with my man, Leo? Yeah, of course. Love it. Well, that was my life. I hosted all those big parties. That was me on Wall Street. So you can imagine they were just printing money. And then so was I because I was handling all of their entertaining for them. Um, but boy, you know, we certainly learned those days how to spend a lot of money too. What does a three, four million pound party look like? Oh God. Well, let me give you, I'll give you a couple examples. Chairman's wife. Um, so ING, you know, there they are based in the Netherlands and their logo. Do you know, do you, do you know the color of their logo? Is it red? Orange. Orange. Yeah, so light red, orange. And so Janice, the wife of the chairman, loved orange tulips. And I'm like, oh boy. So I got a call five or six days before the party, the big first big party. She said, Andy, what are you doing on Wednesday? And I said, well, the party's Friday. I'm kind of underwater. She said, well, can you, can you disappear for a day? I said, I don't know. She said, how about Tuesday? I said, well, Tuesday, maybe I could. I could disappear. She said, okay, well, I've chartered a 747 jet and it's going to be waiting for you on the tarmac at JFK. And I said, well, Janice, where am I going? And she said, Amsterdam. I'm like, Amsterdam. She said, yes, I've bought 250,000 orange tulips and I want you to recreate the kitchen gardens in New York City. I'm like, holy shit, you've got to be kidding me. That was an unbelievable adventure. Of course, I'm calling everybody I know. Hey, you want to go to Amsterdam tomorrow? Listen, we're only going for lunch, but we're coming back late day, but you know, there'll be champagne and I'll, I'll, Andy, I have to work, I can't. So it was literally like me and one assistant with a flight crew of 12, you know, champagne, caviar, eating away. And then we filled the plane, the underneath with all the tulips and flew back. 
and we recreated the kitchen gardens all around the water club going up the East River of Manhattan. So that was one talk of the city. The big thing, of course, was that they wanted to have a real showstopper. So I went and met with the Garuchis, who were the, the ultimate premier fireworks family of New York. And I said, I need a fireworks display that no one's ever done before. And they said, well, I, it's gonna cost you a quarter of a million dollars, $250,000 or a little bit more. And in 1994, there was a lot of money to spend on fireworks when most people would spend 10 or 12 grand. And so um, we hired a barge. I had a, um, as you know, the ING logo is a lion. And so I had a lion that was built that was maybe 80 feet high, four meters or five meters. And that it floated down and it was all lit up. It was a huge lion that went down the river and then fireworks everywhere. And that was a little bit of a problem. You know, I mean, it was the most beautiful display you've ever seen. But the next morning I got a phone call from the mayor's office and they said, Andy, um, we understand that you're the event planner that produced that big party last night for ING Bank. And I said, yes. They said, well, um, we got a problem. And I said, what's the problem? They said, well, the FDR drive, uh, the West side highway, all the major highways stopped for 20 minutes and everybody got out of their cars and ambulances couldn't get anywhere. I mean, this, the city was crippled and we need to find you. I'm like, what? I'm like, we're going to find you $50,000, which is quite a bit of money. I'm like, oh my gosh, you know, what goes on? And I had to go to ING and tell them, you know, so I put my tail in between my legs and I call the chairman and I said, you know, can I come meet with you? And they're like, oh my God, Andy, absolutely. You know, I said, well, we have a problem. And they said, well, wait, what's, what's the problem? I said, well, apparently the fireworks display stopped all the traffic in Manhattan and New York city and the mayor's office wants to fine us. And the chairman looked at me and said, stop right there. Don't say another word. I'm like, Oh no, you know, and he opened his door out onto the trading floor where there were a hundred bankers, 200 bankers all working. And he said, everybody, we're being fined by the mayor's office, $50,000 for, you know, stopping all of the traffic in Manhattan, ING, ING. And everybody just started cheering and they were just clapping. Hooray, Andy. And I was like, Oh my God. I thought they were going to fire me immediately. And they're like, you are amazing. And I'm like, holy shit. So can you imagine? I mean, between the tulips and the fireworks, it was quite the party. <laughs> what is the, what was the contrast like between, you know, being the guy that can make everything happen and then finding yourself, you know, fast forward in a position like Fire Festival where it seemed like no one could save that. You know, you went from this, having the power to make everything okay to being in a situation where I don't think anyone could have saved it. Oh boy, well, you know, Lewis, it's, I kept quoting it in the documentaries, you know, and, and the only thing that kept me going is that the most famous music festival in the world is still Woodstock. And Woodstock was a fucking disaster at the end, you know, and they didn't have any water and it rained every day and there were mudslides and the traffic was backed up miles and miles and miles and people had nowhere to you know nowhere to sleep and 
It was just a nightmare. Drug overdoses, deaths, you know, on and on and on. But it still goes down in history as the most successful music festival ever because who play? Everybody played. The Beatles, Rolling Stones, any top group around the world, they all performed. But think about it, Lois. It was before social media. So if there had been social media then and someone had been posting going, oh my God, it's pouring rain, uh, there's no water, um, you can't even park, um, you have to walk two hours up the highway to get even get people go, fuck that, I'm not going, it's over and we're canceling. Mm. But there was no social media. And you think about the success of fire, the orange tile, the way it was posted, all the influencers, you know, on and on and on. And then what brought down that stupid festival? The fucking cheese sandwich. And as you know, I mean, that is the irony of it all. And that went viral around the world in seconds. And it was all because I had two kids that had too much to drink. And I looked at them and I said, you need to eat something. Why don't you go over to the employee tent and grab a sandwich because that's the employee meal. We'll be serving a big dinner in a few hours, but you guys need to eat something now. Fine. 10 minutes later, another couple of kids came by drunk as can be. And I said, you guys, they just arrived because they had been, we had detained them as you know, at a resort around the corner for the day and just fed them full of liquor and good food and beautiful beaches to try to buy us some time to fix the damn village, which had been destroyed in the storm. And so um, there they were, you know, hot sun and alcohol all day, you can imagine. And boom, the second couple goes over to get their cheese sandwich. Something happened in the midst of all of it where one of my employees backed over a water line and a pipe was water was shooting up in the air, 200 feet high. I was trying to figure all that out. I look over and there were 500 kids in line for that flipping cheese sandwich. And the cameras are out and the phones are out. And I'm like, that was it. I knew it was the end. And boom, phone rang. Andy, Blink-182. All of the acts, most of them, all the performers were 10 minutes away on the island of Nassau at a beautiful resort, all waiting to board their planes and come over and perform. And one by one, they canceled because they said, this is a fraud. This isn't real. It's not luxury, you know, on and on and on. But if one of them had come, the stage was an amazing stage that Luca, one of the most talented people for me in the production world from Italy, built this million dollar stage on the beach, which was incredible from a lighting perspective, an AV, everything was top of the line. But if one act had come to start to perform, you and your girlfriend would have grabbed a beer, a fish sandwich, you're in your bikinis and your bathing suits, you're dancing, you wouldn't have given a shit. You would have said, oh my God, we're gonna party in the Bahamas for $1,200 for three days, who cares? But oh no, the wonderful cheese sandwich. Yeah, I think that like when that went viral, the sort of, the what that depicted was everyone's impression was that that was everyone's one meal for the day. Like it just sort of got lost in translation, would you say? Absolutely. I mean, the damn styrofoam container and, oh, but think about it. You know, it is, um, you know, social media is, is really tricky. And it's, I don't know about you, but 
for me every day. I'm, I have to watch what I say. I have to watch what I do. I have to watch where I go. I'm in Miami last week planning something potentially very big, but I can't talk about it. Paparazzi's following me on the beach. And one of the local DJs comes up and says, hey, Andy, just want to let you know, you know, you got these paparazzi and they're kind of behind the bush. I said, I'm well aware. I know. And I, if they want to ask me something, it's fine. They're taking my picture. I don't know why they want to take a picture of a 60-year-old man in a bathing suit, you know, trying to take a 10-minute break on the beach. But um, it's hard, you know, for me to align myself with anybody right now is somewhat tricky because I need to make sure that whatever I'm working on better be successful or I'm in deep shit, as you can imagine. Yeah. So taking the execution out of it, what did what do you think of the actual vision, the actual idea of Fire Festival? If you take away the execution of what happened, well, it's the the idea was brilliant, still brilliant. Think about like creating an amazing music festival with amazing food, art, you know, health and wellness on a beautiful island, great music. Um, being able to interact with kids from all around the world, hanging out with supermodels and celebrities and kind of, you know, interchanging all of them. That's like a, a situation that you never get involved with, really. The normal person doesn't. So you're like, hell yeah, I'm in. And for 1200 bucks, I mean, really? And I know, you know, obviously there were so many different levels of VIP. You could have a chartered yacht, you could have a villa, you know, but the average person in a tent is paying 1200 bucks. Not so bad for three days in the Bahamas on one of the most beautiful islands in the world with crystal clear water, fresh fish and seafood. And, you know, I think that the idea was brilliant and it'll, it'll happen again. So what, before you were brought in, before all of this happened, what was your relationship with Billy and why did he trust you so much as, you know, the guy to, to, to bring in when sort of shit hit the fan? Um, it has a lot to do with my, obviously, my previous experiences of being America's first corporal concierge. And when Billy started his first bigger company, Magnesis, the black credit card for 20-somethings, um, I happened to be in New York, New York City on New Year's Eve, which I never normally would be, but I was hosting a wedding. And I got a call from a friend saying, where are you? I said, I'm in the city. I said, he said, oh, good. Well, you need to meet this boy named Billy McFarlane. And he's having a New Year's Eve party right now in his Soho loft. And he's trying to build this community around this cool credit card. But my friend said, my son is there. My son says, Andy King needs to get here as soon as possible because they're serving bad, really long sandwiches and bad kegs of beer. And the loft isn't well decorated and the guest list isn't great. And this boy is not going to be able to do what he wants to do without Andy and his guidance. So of course I went over, met Billy. We became very close, very quickly. And I was able to help him find a new location for Magnesis, a beautiful brownstone. We hired a butler and a chef. I hosted over 40 events for him with chef's dinners and musical performances and concerts and art openings and club nights and you name it to create what he was trying to build was a community for young kids coming out of university, working really hard and not having the ability to meet other people. And so I was helping him build that. And so he and I 
became really close to the process. And so I think he knew the quality of my work and he knew what I could create. And when the shit hit the fan with fire, he's like, when can you get here? And I was hosting the World Cup co-op, the World Cup Pro-Am Ski Championships in Squaw Valley in Northern California. And um, so I was on the opposite side of the country and he sent a jet to pick me up. So that should have been cue number one that, <laughs> that maybe there was something a little askew that he was spending 50 or $60,000 to have me come to a meeting. Like, oh boy. But at that point I thought, well, things have, have become quite different. And he did, as you know, I mean, he raised over $29 million, but now he owes it when he gets out of prison. Do you ever wonder what could have been if you were involved right from the start of the idea rather than coming in when it was too late? I'd probably be in prison, right? <laughs> um, I'm sure. Um, yeah, I'm, I, I, but then nobody else, even the people, all the players that were in it at the beginning, no one went to prison except for Billy because Billy was controlling all the finances single-handedly on his computer and his, and his iPad. So no one was privy of where the money was coming from, how it was being spent on what and, and how it, how the festival was being represented. You know, it was all Billy. Billy made every presentation himself to raise money. Sadly, I was a reference, one of the final references that most of the big investors called. But I said to them, listen, you know, you can't take my word as Bible, but I've been working with Billy for the last few years and he's a young entrepreneur and he's a genius and everything that he's touched has done very well. So, you know, I think you're safe on this investment. Little did I know. Right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there's a part towards the end of the documentary where, you know, the whole team, yourself included, you were almost a, well, you were a wanted man. Um, what was that like when you, how scared were you in that moment? Was was the threat real? Oh, it was real. Yeah, it was very scary. Because you can imagine, the, you know, first of all, the Bahamas, like many of the Bahamian islands and the Caribbean islands, they're all very poor islands. Like the locals have no money. And so to have a situation like this, where they've landed this amazing music festival, people coming in from all around the world, bringing in tourism, bringing in commerce, boosting the economy was very, very exciting. But once it all started to go wrong and it was becoming painfully obvious that many of these local small companies who had put themselves out there and were waiting to be paid at the end of the festival were not gonna get paid. And they knew it and they were furious and upset and you know, they were prepared to do anything to get their money. And I, being the only gray-haired person on the island, the only person that really they all knew quite well besides Billy because of my personality and how I was trying to work with all of them, I was the one they were coming to at the end to say, I want my money. But it wasn't small amounts. It was 50000 20000 80000 240000 I'm like, oh, my word. I said, you got to talk to Billy. And they're like, well, we can't find him. So we're talking to you and we'll stay with you until we get our money. I'm like, Oh my word. And I literally, as you know, I mean, I smuggled myself out of there. 
I changed clothes with one of the kids that worked for me. I put on dirty jeans and a dirty baseball cap. I hid behind a, a you know, a porta potty. Someone picked me up. I jumped into the back of the car and laid on the ground in the car. We got out of the village. Car got a flat tire. I had to run on the side of the road for miles. And every time a car came up, I hid in the bushes. And I finally got home and I started packing up the villa. And my lawyers were like, you have to get off that island. It's not safe. But the first plane that could get me was five hours away. And the jet wasn't going to get there until five hours. And, you know, I was really lucky. And I hid in the back of a pickup truck with branches on top of me for two hours on the side of the airport in the woods. And then finally, when the jet landed, we screeched out onto the runway. I jumped out of the car and we jumped on the plane. And the pilot was like, welcome, Mr. King. I said, stop talking. Get this plane off the ground, please. You know, and he started going before even the door was shut. And um, and I didn't feel semi-safe until the wheels were up and off the ground. Unbelievable. Crazy. So, yeah. Crazy. And I felt very, I mean, I felt horrible I was leaving all these kids, you know, but there was nothing I could do. Hmm. Billy was there, the whole team was there, and you know, as my, well, my consultant said, you know, Andy, you're not Jesus and you're not Mother Teresa. So get off the island because they're going to hold you responsible. And you never had a signed contract. I never got paid anything. And in the end, the festival probably ended up costing me over a million dollars personally. So pretty crazy. I think we've probably already touched on the answer to this, but throughout your old do you remember the point where you thought we can't turn this around now? We can't save this. Oh boy. At the end of every meeting, every day, people would say, Andy, when are you pulling the plug? And I'd say, we've got to keep going. I know we can make this happen. I know. And I know most of the world would disagree, but I say we were this close, this close to making it happen. As you may remember from the documentary, I flew in from California. I met with the team, I walked the property, I walked the venue, I met with some of the consultants who we're working with. And I basically said, the only way that we are gonna succeed is if we change the messaging right now to tell all these kids that they're sleeping in tents and there's not going to be all the luxury accommodations that they thought. And we probably would have lost 10 to 15%. But the rest would have said, shit, I'm in, I don't care packing my bathing suit and putting it in my backpack and I'm heading down. But as you know, the messaging did not get changed until 10 hours before the first guest got there and it was too late. And they were, you know, really disappointed and really upset and it was a mess. And uh, so I, you know, when would I have pulled the plug? I mean, if I had known that he wasn't gonna change the messaging at all, I would have pulled the plug when I first got there and I would have said, we are postponing this by two months or more and we're going to do this right. But, you know, I didn't. <laughs> I hoped I could make it work. So lastly on the fire stuff then, if there's a lesson to be learned from the story of Billy McFarlane, if there is a lesson, what is it? Um... 
it's fine to be enamored by anyone who's got a dream and anyone who is enthusiastic and anyone who wants to make something impossible happen. It's fine to support someone like that. But at the end of the day, the only way you can support them is to be assured and work with them on making sure they have the proper infrastructure in place. And what does that mean? The proper funding, the proper, even, you know, the right venue, electricity to even just be a, you know, a little starter and plumbing um, and the right partners and the, and the right education on like, okay, so you can raise all this money. What exactly are you doing with all the money? And you have to have somebody who's very responsible on managing the budget and all expenditures. And none of that took place, you know, and Billy was spending a lot of money on supermodels and he was spending a lot of money on jets and he was spending a lot of money on a lot of different things. But when it came down to the end, a lot of our challenges were that we owed a lot of money to shipping companies and we owed a lot of money to customs and we owed a lot of money to the big vendors where I'd get a call and they'd say there are, you know, 700 beds sitting on the docks in Miami, but they're not being shipped until you pay the balance. And I'd say, Billy, got to pay the balance. Say, okay, I'll do it today. But of course he wouldn't. And then that's the reason why he's in prison is that he began obviously not only falsifying his own financial statements and documents to get investment, he was also falsifying bank wires to all the big vendors and they were fake wires a lot of the time. And, you know, it's not a good way to run a business, but I think if the music festival had come off and if everybody had arrived and all the music played, it would have been successful. He would have been able to pay everybody back. He was this close. Too bad. So up to this point, you've lived a life of, you know, extraordinary stories. Everyone can see it. You know, you've got so many stories to share and fire fest was probably enough drama for one lifetime. Um, I know we were talking before we went live, but since then, has life got a little bit quieter or do you keep finding yourself in uh, some situations? Life is quieter, which is good. Uh, the challenge right now is that um, because of COVID, my partner and I have now moved down to down south between New York and Florida and we're in Charleston, South Carolina. It's a beautiful part of the world, but my ethos, the last 10 to 15 years has been all about sustainability and zero waste events. And that's my focus. I'm trying to eliminate plastic from large events and trying to support local farmers and trying to support women and minority run companies and supporting startups that are driving positivity and on and on. And that's a difficult journey here right now. Um, the Southern part of the United States lives a little bit more in the past than in the future. And, uh, so I have my challenges every day, but I'm excited to say I'm helping to produce the, all the VIP experiences for the Bluegrass Music Festival that's taking place here next week. And um, so we'll have almost 5,000 people attending and uh, um, it's a challenge trying to make sure we don't have plastic water bottles or all these different things because the infrastructure is not here for proper recycling, isn't here for getting large containers of water that people can use for refilling stations. You know, this is all things that we're trying to now build 
So I'm, I've gone back a few years, which is a teeny bit stressful, but I'm always up to the challenge. Yeah, I remember thinking this when I was reading bef- um, before we came on here of this, you know, zero waste events. And I was wondering, how do you define zero waste when it comes to something like events? Like, how far does that go? Well, let's just say the last big event I did for Leonardo DiCaprio, which was right before COVID, it was almost 500 guests for a dinner. We had over 900 employees building the site out for a week in California. And it was 99.9% zero waste. And so there's a whole formula but it's that we worked with a farm that planted all the gardens for all of, all of the, most of the food that was served. And we partnered with vineyards that had beautiful old structures that had fallen down and they had carpenters that came and took all the old wood and made tables and bars and, and shelving units and all sorts of fun things. And we had a third generation ceramicist family who made pottery and they made all the pottery for the 500 guests and all the pottery was donated to families who had lost their homes in the fires that year in California. Um, we had, you know, there's a whole piece that goes into how do you make it as close to zero waste as possible, but it's all about recycling, repurposing, reusing, reclaiming, um, you know, and those are all so important. It's like, I don't try to put small businesses out of business, but even go and try to have a big event and rent luxury furniture. It's so expensive to rent lounge furniture, but guess what? You can go to freaking Ikea and buy something similar for cheaper than renting it and then donate it to schools and hospitals and nursing homes after the party. And these are the kinds of things we do now, which is, you know, so, they're not totally zero waste, but the fact that we're able to divert so much from going to landfill, that it really is the right way to host large events today. Yeah, you mentioned um, Leo over there, and I think everyone knows, you know, you know, the work he's doing and especially the message he's trying to get out there, especially with his recent films. What is his ultimate goal what is his end game do you know do you have any inkling into what is he really looking to achieve well i think that's a challenge um leo has been all across the map which is a challenge for himself because he's focusing on the amazon he's focusing on antarctica he's focusing on rainforests he's focusing and um you know and he said it he can't save the world you know he has the ability with his profile and with his name and with his reach to really make a difference and to inspire a lot of people to make better choices and better decisions when it comes to everyday lives and how we how we live our lives in more of a sustainable way and predominantly feed, you know focusing on climate change um, on the flip side you have somebody like mark ruffalo and mark is very good friends with leo And Mark founded a charity called the Solutions Project. And Mark predominantly focuses on renewable energy and hoping to have the world embrace 100% renewable energy by 2050. And that, you know what that means. It's a solar panel on every roof. It's a wind turbine. It's an electric car in the driveway. It's, you know, so it's more condensed. And I think Leo's slowly but surely, he's recently partnered with Lorraine Powell Jobs, um, Steve Jobs, widow 
and they're running a charity together now um hold it i think it's like earth alliance or something but that they're trying to now kind of narrow down their goals and their focuses so that they can make an impact in specific areas not everywhere you know but it is it's hard for leo because he's seen so much you know whether whether he was shooting his movie in antarctica to all over where he has seen firsthand how this planet is just falling apart and it's overwhelming so i know that he's he's doing his best as a um as a celebrity and i feel bad because people will like find fault and they're like well there's leo the hypocrite because he's getting on board another private jet and he's flying somewhere else and i'm like i'm like i've had this conversation with leo before where he said Andy, have you, you want to walk through an airport with me? <laughs> like, no, I don't. It's bad enough walking through an airport with myself at this point. Everybody's secretly videoing me or taking my picture. But I can imagine with poor Leo, like you can't get anywhere. You can't go anywhere. It's really hard. And I know it's for a lot of people that like, oh, cry me a river. But, you know, it is challenging when you lose your anonymity and your privacy. And so boarding a small plane where you only have three or four people that are you're close with and then getting on board a yacht where you have another 10 or 20 people that you're close with. It, it is unfortunately sometimes the way people want to live where they're not bombarded with the world against them all the time, you know? Yeah. I could imagine you would never, never ever make his flight on time if that was the case. And you know, it is tough. Like these people, they, they, they will come under, so much scrutiny you can you can only do so much and someone's going to find fault in everything but from your perspective then what is the sort of real leo like from your relationship who, who do you see in there um you know leo's a good guy with a lot of pressure on him all the time and he's trying to do his best as an actor but you can imagine um you know, and this gets into the topic of like mental health with celebrities, but it's hard, you know, it's hard to be in the public eye all the time. It's hard. You only feel like you're only as good as your last film or your last movie, you know, it's difficult. And I think that he's got his demons that he has to deal with every day of just trying to do his best, um, trying to create good entertainment for the world um, and then balance that with his charities and the things that he loves and that um you know trying to have somewhat of a normal life but i don't think it's that easy you know it isn't for any of these top celebrities they just you know you become a little insecure because you're just always looking over your shoulder you're always looking across the room you're always it's hard you know and when people want your attention constantly i commend him for his role that he plays in hollywood and the scrutiny that he's up up against and the planet world but at the end of the day he's an amazing voice so two final questions that i ask every guest the first one i don't know how much of a reader you are but i see a couple of books behind you are there any books that you've read in your life that have had a big impact on you uh, well let's say my favorite book in the world is jd salinger's catcher in the rye hmm. and it's a book that most of us all read in grade school um, but, um, I always think of myself as Holden Caulfield, the main character of the book and a very popular person. Um, but always stepping outside of my body and, 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 
looking around the room from the outside. So I can be in the middle of every party, but I'm actually really standing outside looking in. And I can tell you what everybody's wearing. I can tell you what everybody's drinking. I can tell you what everybody's talking about. Um, and one of my challenges is to try to help make myself be more present and not be constantly overviewing everything that's going on. But that's the, the big entertainer in me. And then that's, you know, a whole nother topic of, of um, being gay and coming out at 35 and fighting it most of my life and, and, and not knowing exactly who I was most of the time and, and not owning it. And, you know, and then as an adult now, I can look back and say, wow, you know, I'm just as good as anybody else. And as a matter of fact, I'm probably better than a lot of people. But in this world, we're all the same. Everybody's the same. And you have to treat everybody the same if you want any respect at all levels. Amazing. Well, my last question for you right now, this could be anything. It could be your family. It could be a message, your work. But right now for Andy King, what makes life worth living? Oh, boy. Um, you know, I think life, what makes life worth living is my partner and my dog <laughs> and my family um, and my really good friends. You know, I'm really blessed in this world to have friends in every port around the world, but the ones closest to me, I can always turn to, you know, and um, I'm so blessed. I'm sure you saw with People Magazine, you know, Andy King finds love after 58 years. And Craig and I have been together now for three years. And um, the fact that we got through COVID, that we cooked breakfast, lunch, and dinner together every day, and that we still love each other more than anything is amazing. So I'm so blessed to have Craig and Thor, my mighty dog, who's getting quite elderly. So I'm, I'm cherishing every minute with him too. So those are my 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 two loves of my life right now i'm blessed to have beautiful yeah i think if you can get down if you can get through lockdown together you can probably get through anything together at this point absolutely yeah lockdown and fire <laughs> <laughs> so look if there's anyone listening now who you know wants to find more from yourself um where can they find you where can they connect i know you've got a a podcast and your first episode was with a mutual friend of ours former guest of ours james smith um yeah. where can they find the podcast where can they find you online where can they find you oh my word okay so real andy king um on instagram it's probably the best way and i um, trying to always increase my followers which is good so i can increase my reach and hopefully spread more positivity and love um and my podcast is i think on Almost all the big major from iHeartRadio to Apple to uh, fully prepared with Andy King. Um, and, um, you know, I think all I ask of the, the viewers, the listeners is to, um, you know, get out there and spread love, you know, do something you love, do something you're passionate about, embrace it and remember that it's not necessarily the money that rules. It's if you're doing something you love, then hopefully the money and the joy will follow. And the quote that I made with James, which of course he cracked up on, was that, you know, one of my favorite songs is of course, The Climb by Miley Cyrus. And he's like, really Andy, what are you, crazy? But at the end of the day, think about it. Like, it's all about the journey and the climb. And we're all so fixated on once we get there, once we get that big house, oh my gosh, once I buy that Lamborghini, like, trust me, 
once you get there, the best part of the whole thing was the journey. It's not being here. It's about getting there and all the cool things you go through in life to get to where you'd like to go. But at the end of the day, I try to tell people, keep going, keep going. And the best place you're ever going to get to is home. Wherever home is for you, home is the place. That's a beautiful message and a beautiful lesson to end on. Andy King, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been an absolute pleasure. Um, I've enjoyed every minute of this conversation. I really appreciate your time, sir. Mine too. And I hope that you uh, stay safe and happy and healthy and, uh, you know, keep spreading the love. That's the name of the game. Thank you so much for joining me on today's episode of the Freedom Pact podcast. If you'd rather watch our podcasts in video form, please head over to youtube.com forward slash Freedom Pact, where all our interviews are uploaded in video format, as well as highlights and best bits from all our episodes. That is youtube.com forward slash Freedom Pact. Please consider subscribing to the show. That's the number one way you can help support us. Thank you so much, and I hope we see you again next week.